In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville in Virginia somewhere. And I'm Al Hunt in Washington. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University. We'll get back there someday. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, Timothy Worth has been a major figure in American public life for almost as long as Joe Biden. He was a member of the House, the United States Senate from Colorado for 18 years, high-ranking State Department official, and for years president of the United Nations Foundation. He's now part of an important group called Keep Our Republic, a small collection of former high-ranking administration officials and members of Congress preparing for a chaotic and perhaps deeply dangerous election day and aftermath. Instead of Mr. Ambassador or Senator, let's just say welcome, Tim. Thank you, Al. Great to be with you again. And James, uh, always a treat. Thank you, sir. Tell our listeners what Keep Our Republic is worried about and warning about. A group of, uh, oh, I think four or five of us uh, got together beginning about five months ago, Al, uh, concerned about uh, what we were learning about the election and about some of the president's emergency powers and uh, looking carefully at the uh, Electoral College legislation. We thought that uh, this was really boded uh, in addition to uh, what we thought was going to be Trump's desire to stay in office no matter what. Uh, This boded uh, not only chaos, but some real trouble for our republic. So we came together and and, uh, uh, members of the group include uh, Dick Gebhardt, you'll remember, and Gary Hart, and uh, two or three high-ranking people from Treasury and, and, uh, and the State Department and elsewhere. And uh, we began to look at the legislation and look at the situation. And uh, we're alarmed in particular by two phenomena. One, which very few people know about, the president has vast emergency powers. He can declare an emergency for any number of reasons. These powers started to be granted to the presidency at the time of uh, Eisenhower and the nuclear threat. And it was understandable then to have uh, emergency powers for the president, but they've expanded since. Uh, and uh, during uh, an examinations of, of chemical warfare and biological warfare, and then of course terrorism and now the pandemic, the president has a, has a whole suite of these powers, which the public knows almost nothing about. Uh, the Brennan Center in New York has done uh, the best work on this, but they are largely secret powers. Uh, there have been no hearings on them that we know about that have been ever able to find. And uh, they grant him authority uh, to make all kinds of decisions. Now, just think about that as background for this election and for a president who may feel very threatened and may decide that uh, he has to invoke some of these emergency powers uh, if he is losing or thinks that he has lost. The second part of our concerns were related to the uh, 12th Amendment and the Electoral College. You look at the Electoral College and uh, it is uh, pretty straightforward in its uh, simplest form, but when you get inside of the Electoral College and begin to, begin to examine what happens in each state, you begin to find that there's lots of room in there for mischief. And mischief is maybe a nice word for saying uh, uh, Dick Gebhardt likes to talk about it being uh, the devil's playground. For example, uh, the election will be held on the 3rd of November, and it's not clear to us that uh, 
anybody will necessarily be elected then. That the count is going to go on well beyond the 3rd of November, as is now pretty well known, uh, because of all the write-in ballots. If the, uh, if the president is losing uh, in the right, well, let's t to get back a step, the president may declare that he is winning uh, because of the uh, ballots that are cast on the same day and uh, uh, will say, I won the election and announce that on the night of the 3rd or the morning of the 4th of November. But in fact, uh, that election uh, margin will dwindle and maybe disappear when the uh, uh, absentee ballots come on. This is the so-called uh, red mirage versus the blue wave. The red mirage of immediate victory, the blue wave coming in uh, with the uh, coming in from absentee ballots. So then it, that, that creates a period of time from the 3rd of November into the middle of December at which time the president can do all kinds of things, and we're worried about many of those, uh, ranging from uh, really encouraging violence in the streets to uh, really pushing on various state delegations, uh, ch challenging uh, what electors in the various states may decide to do. So we think it's potentially going to be a very uh, chaotic time. And uh, most importantly in all of this, the public has to be reassured that votes can be counted in a safe way a full and fully counted, fully counted, that it's safe to vote and your vote will be counted. We've had challenges to voting in the past. We've had challenges to the system in the past. We can, we can, uh, we can certainly uh, succeed this time around, even though we're hearing, hearing a lot of bad things from the administration. I get what you're saying is that uh, we, your worry is that the in-person voting in some places may favor Trump, but we know the mail votes are likely to swing it to Biden. And you, you think that Trump and Barr could even go so far as to try to impound or invalidate mail ballots while claiming victory? Well, that could be one of the things that they do. Another thing that they might do would be to shut down, uh, uh, get, get allies in one of the uh, swing states, get the allies in the state legislature in a swing state, uh, to make, to uh, invalidate the results and declare their own slate of victors, which would be for Trump, even though the popular vote in that state would be for Biden. And then we get to uh, the time the Electoral College meets in December and we're really in a mess. And uh, I think it's very likely that there'll be challenges uh, in a number of states by the president uh, if, in fact, they are losing. And he will claim that uh, a lot of these votes were Say when the blue wave starts to come in, they're invalid. We should count them immediately. They're infected with the virus. They were Chinese votes. I mean, you can imagine a whole variety of of, uh, of statements that he might make to challenge those votes. So we're I think we're in for a real rodeo. I think in um, in late November, early December. You and James can discourse on this, Tim. But if Biden wins decisively in reality, and he carries early states that report mail uh, at the same time as in person, North Carolina and Florida. Doesn't that, if not eliminate it, at least mitigate the problem? No question about it. And But I think it uh, would be foolish of us to uh, believe that everything's okay. When we first started this uh, four or five months ago, we were told by pundits and politicos and leadership everywhere, oh, you're just exaggerating, nothing like this can happen and so on. People are now couching on to the fact that this, oh, in fact, we may have very, very significant problems and we better be prepared. Uh, we were not prepared in, in uh, 2000 during the Bush-Gore uh, during, during Bush events in Florida, which went on for, you'll remember, more than a month. Uh, I think a, a review of that record would show that the Democrats uh, uh, had a number of opportunities in which to win that election and didn't because they didn't know the rules and didn't know what was going on with the kind of care that uh, James Baker and the Republicans did. And they got out foxed. And we can't allow uh, what uh, we would call whistling past the graveyard. The Democrats are often very good at whistling past the graveyard, ignoring the dangers. We think we have to be prepared. I hope you're right. Uh, it'd be great if the election were too big to rig, but I think it uh, would be a major error for us to count on the fact of the election being too big to rig. Yeah, hope hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's right. Um, what is something that he might try before the election? 
if that the power that he has that our listeners don't know about. Well, we haven't. I don't think that it's likely that he's going to uh, exercise these powers before the election. Um, uh, I think that uh, the election is probably going to go ahead, even though he may uh, attempt to send. They 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 have said the Republican Party has said that they are recruiting thirty thousand poll watchers. Now, I don't imagine that those poll watchers are going to be there to help little old ladies across the street. I would suspect that they're going to be there. They're going to be there precinct by precinct, uh, trying to uh, perhaps discourage the vote, challenge votes, and so on. Um, the uh, Democrats have to respond and have said that they, uh, the uh, Biden campaign, has said that it hopes to have a lawyer, at least one lawyer, in every precinct in the in uh, the swing states. So we're going to maybe have a battle going right through election day as to who's who is who is discouraged from voting whose voting has to be protected and so on. And we just have to, again, say over and over and over again, you know, this is going to be okay to tell people vote. Your vote's going to be safe. And we have to do everything we can to protect and assure that that vote will happen and be fully counted. Well, you know, just to make you feel a little bit better, I did an event for the Paris County Democrats. Uh-huh. And they told me they had seven, that's seven, Houston. They've had 700 lawyers volunteer to help with, ballot issues, anything. I mean, there there's so many people around this country that are doing so much on the ground. And I mean, and the good thing about your side is you can, you know, tell them what to look for. And, you know, but they, uh, we're not going to get, my sense is we were asleep in 2016. You know, they're going to try, but we, we're pretty woke. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear about Paris County. We, we call this the people's firewall. You know, there are no formal defenses against the president's use of these emergency powers. The Congress uh, doesn't know about them and doesn't have any authority to change them. He can do just about anything he wants, uh, but won't in the face of vast public pressure. And we've seen that. So we call out the people's firewall. Uh, the people of the country have to be alerted and have to be committed to having a fair, full and fully counted election. You know, that's at every level of government and that's businesses who do certainly don't want to see chaos uh, uh, in the economy and in the country. It's got to be, obviously, all of the political class and the universities and everybody has got to be thinking about this at every level, and its citizens have to be alert and aware as well. So one of the things that we're happy is slowly but surely happening is that uh, the television and so on are slowly but surely catching on to the fact that people have to be alerted and have to be aware of what's happening and um, uh, the more that happens, the more pressure there will be, and the less likely uh, that we'll see some kind of a massive effort by the Trump people. I think there'll be limited efforts, and there'll be it'll be uh, less effective if we have this major citizens firewall. You've been working. You've worked at senator, congressman, the, the UN. How much? How long is it going to take to you know the CDC, the WHO? treaties, the uh, Iran Treaty, the Paris Accords. How long is it going to take even for, for Joe Biden to remotely fix this? Well, I mean, when some are domestic and some are, are international, we can immediately uh, join WHO and support it again as we should. And the uh, institution that I headed for a while, the UN Foundation, for example, helped to raise a little over $200 million for WHO because of the budget shortfalls. It's the most important public health agency in the world and uh, been absolutely maligned in a bad fashion. We can join that right away. We can rejoin the Paris Accords right away. Uh, that can be done and that opening will still be there uh, in January. Uh, related to the Iran nuclear agreement, which was extremely important, uh, the Europeans want to go back to that. And I think that the, uh, the Russians want to go back to that. Everybody, It's in everybody's interest to return to a limitation on uh, Iranian nuclear uh, capabilities. And I think Iran wants to do that uh, more than they want to be a rogue without any support from the outside world. So those are things, for example, James, that can be done quickly and well. And uh, I would expect that the uh, Biden administration, which is, has a very, very deep and experienced foreign policy bench, uh, that they'll be coming back quickly. I think that's almost easier to do than rebuilding the institutions in our own backyard. Uh, under the uh, current administration, w, uh, the 
uh, uh, public health service and the uh, the uh, uh, FDA and and the public health and the Center for Disease Control have all been badly compromised and corroded uh, by fundamentally by the corruption of this administration. So it's uh, it's going to take a while to rebuild those. That effort has to go on immediately. The CDC is like WHO. It's uh, it also sends a lot of uh, staff to WHO around the world or people from the Center for Disease Control. I mean, it is our domestic, it's the premier public health group in the world. And, uh, you know, it is now, I think, uh, pretty shabbily led and, uh, and thoroughly politicized. And that is absolutely unnecessary. That's been one of the causes of uh, uh, so many people dying in the United States. We have to remember that... Uh, you know, the, this administration is to be responsible for uh, for uh, uh, just an awful lot of people dying. A friend of mine used to say about Russia, when they talked about various parts of the leadership in Russia, you know, various leaders had, quote, blood up to his elbows. And so I, I always think about that when I watch those uh, numbers of uh, mortality and, and deaths in the United States due to COVID, unnecessary and uh you know, a terrible, terrible situation. And that's been a public health failure, but and mostly a political failure. That has to be rebuilt. That's going to take longer. But I think uh, we have an awful lot of very good public health professionals in the country and in the world. I'm always impressed every time I see a public health officer from one of the states speaking or from one of the big cities speaking. We have a lot of very well-trained people. And uh, They've got to be reorganized, recalibrated, new, uh, new energy, new direction, and new enthusiasm so they can get back on the job they're so good at. Tim, let me take you back to the – James, let me, um, it's okay. Just let me take you back to, to, to these powers because uh, we, we've talked to some very high-ranking former Justice Department officials. I suspect some of the people you've talked to. And I guess what they say is, yeah, it's a real danger. It's not so much enumerated powers as what – uh, a president is willing to claim. Dick Cheney, with John Yoo and Dave Addington, for instance, said in the fight against torture or for tor to torture terrorists, really laws don't apply. Uh, uh, that was beyond what was supposed to be legitimate. A more benign example currently, but one that just is kind of astounding, the CDC outlaws evictions. I think that's a good idea, but where did the CDC get that authority? And if you look at that, Tim, Donald Trump, uh, might make Dick Cheney look like James Madison and what he's willing to do. And you think Bill Barr would be an enabler, right? Of course. Uh, you know, there are two parts of this. I mean, your question is a very good one, a very important one. Uh, let me just as an aside, we've been working with various parts in the Congress trying to get the Congress to hold hearings on these emergency powers. So far, not with any any success. But the public doesn't know anything about this. We are a democratic society and the president has been seated or claims vast powers, and it's not discussed. It's uh, so to the two main themes. One is congressional oversight. The Congress is, uh, as you know, from everything from war powers to looking at the emergency powers to spending, has really ceded its authority dramatically, and, and uh, Trump has, has taken it. Look at the uh, battle over the wall and the funding of the wall. You know, it used to be when you and I were in this business together at the same time 40 years ago. It used to be that uh, it was very clear that the uh, president proposes, but the Congress disposes. Now the president proposes and the Congress lays down and said, yes, sir, whatever you want us to do. It's a terrible situation and certainly counter to uh, the intent of the founders and to the framework and the way in which the Constitution has worked. In addition, the president claims these vast Article II powers, which may be uh, one of the roots for the unitary authority uh, uh, claims by Bill Barr and his, his Federalist group of lawyers. The president certainly is enabled by Barr. I can't imagine that during these times when we may have emergencies arising, I can't imagine that the president wouldn't be going to Barr and say, is it legal for me to do this? And Barr would say, yes, sir, it's, of course that's legal for you to do it. So the president would then be claiming this is all legal and uh, would be moving ahead. So, again, that's the lack of any kind of control over this. And, and the Congress has no oversight over it. It's a terrible situation. And uh, we have to get into a situation in 2021 of examining uh, these emergency powers and of examining 
you know, what the Congress believes its authority is. If you read the Constitution, there are Article I authority and Article II authority. The Congress is the first branch of government, Article I. Uh, the President has lots of power in Article II, but it's checked by the Congress. And we've not seen the Congress exercising that responsibility. It's a remarkable story of the, uh, of, uh, of the lack of backbone somewhere on, on uh, Capitol Hill, particularly in the Senate, obviously. And that has to be corrected if our democracy is going to survive. Well, I think I, I could not agree with you more on that. Let me just, again, a little bit more short term in this in this potential power grab and illicit uh, uh, activity that Trump might engage in to try to steal this election. You're working with some Republicans, I, I think, like Tom Ridge. Yep. Do you think there are any Republicans who might stand up? To this, there have been very few. Mitt Romney stood up to something, Wisconsin State Supreme Court judge, last week. But do you think any of these Republicans might get a conscience and, <laughs> and, and cease being enablers? Well, we have so far, have we? I mean, I think that obviously everybody always mentions uh, Mitt Romney. I think Lisa Murkowski is somebody who's got a conscience, obviously, and she's been very thoughtful about how, uh, about how, she, is, how she votes and how she thinks. And she's chairman now of a major committee that energy committee in the Senate. So that's extremely important. You know, from time to time, you get a, a positive word from Tom Tillis in North Carolina, although he's up for a very tough reelection this year. Oh, Tim, he, wait a minute, he could go just just for a second. Let me in, in, interrupt. He was the one that offered and wrote an op-ed about the president could not take funds uh, from the Pentagon and, and devote them to the war and said, this is a matter of principle. And then the White House you know, cracked the whip on him, and he caved and voted to let the president do that. I, I, I think his backbone is somewhat tepid. Well, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm not. I'm not listing a lot of backbone. I'm not defining. Backbone. No, you're not. Mitt Romney's the one we all. Everybody always speaks about, and it's hard to find otherwise. You know, we have uh, in Colorado, for example, uh, Cory Gardner, the freshman senator there, is up for election this year is a very talented politician and a very good candidate. And, uh, you know, he has been a, a 99% supporter of Donald Trump, even in Colorado, which is moving from when it was red when I was first elected to purple, and now it's becoming blue. And uh, I think that, you know, we'll see if, if, if he can survive as a skilled politician in the face of a blue wave in Colorado, when, then we're in for some really deep troubles in various parts of the country and, and you know, uh, getting control of the Senate will be really hard. So I guess I look at this like you look at the Civil War. There were three outcomes that the South could win or the South could basically tie. And that would have produced peace agreement that would protect slavery. The North would win big with his charter, the Confederate Army. Well, the third thing happened, thank God. I think their strategy in the, the range of this race is a small that it'll go from a, a, a Trump electoral narrow electoral win to Biden by double digits. Okay, where do you where at what point? Now I understand this is just we're just making a fun guess here. At at what point do you think it becomes untenable for them to try to you know take over these uh, electoral? Bonus. Okay, well, it's the electoral. You're going, you're putting your finger right on the troubling spot, which is the electoral college and the elector and the count of electors, and that goes back, of course, to the swing states. And what's going to happen in Pennsylvania? What's going to happen in Wisconsin? I think are the two uh, most problematic of all of the states, and uh, we may well have conflicts there. We may well have a situation in which. Uh, Say Biden wins. Biden wins the popular vote. But, but I'm asking a, a little bit of a different question. Yeah, obviously, if 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 it's close, they'll try it. Yeah. All right. Suppose suppose that that Biden has carried Florida, but theoretically, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're waiting on. on it, it only works if the election is really really close to fool around with with Michigan or Pennsylvania. That's right. Because you know, but you know, even them, I mean, the public would just go, whew. Well, I, I think the public's going to be challenging the result from either side. I suspect they've already, you know, a lot of these militias and the people that Trump is ginning up 
are uh, gonna if uh, Biden wins, they're gonna they're gonna be in the in the streets in some fashion anyway, and that's what a lot of these poll watchers and so on are gonna be doing. I I really worry about that. Uh, I hope we have a great big win, but I I think it's uh, as I said before, I think it would be terrible of us to think that it's gonna be too big to rig, and so we don't have to worry. We have to be prepared, and we have to understand what happens in the electoral college, what happens in that vote. And the delegations, how does the delegation get chosen in Pennsylvania? How does it get chosen in Wisconsin? Who's influencing that? And then what happens when they all come together in January, which is the big rodeo? What, what site should our listeners go to? Do you have a, a, a site posted? that? Well, if they go on our website, which is keepourrepublic.com, there's lots of information about where to go. It's keep, it's keep our republic, one word. You remember uh, Benjamin Franklin at the end of the Constitutional Convention was asked uh, what was created, and he said, a republic if you can keep it, which is why we name our group Keep Our Republic. It's one word, keepourrepublic.com. There's lots of information there on uh, how to vote, how to be sure to count your vote, uh, what you can do as a citizen, and, and that we're expanding that all the time. And many, many people asking just the question you ask, what can I do? And it's terribly important that citizens take action and it's terribly important that all of us do everything we can to assure uh, that a vote can be counted. Let me note, note one other thing. Uh, Dick Gebhardt has been leading our efforts with the former members of Congress. I don't know if you've dealt with that group, but there are about 200 Republicans and Democrats, absolutely bipartisan effort uh, to make sure that votes are fully counted all the way through, safe and fully counted. And they, are, they have launched a campaign called the Patience Campaign. Uh, to make sure that people are patient, that networks and news people and authorities and so on don't demand an immediate vote, an immediate count on November 3rd or 4th, but understand it's going to take a long while for all these votes to come in. So it's absolutely imperative uh, that we all exercise patience, that we preach patience, that we understand that patience is necessary, and we're not going to be stampeded by whatever kind of violence might occur in the streets or whatever might be said in the White House or where, or by the Attorney General, patience while all the votes are being counted. And that's a very important uh, uh, nonpartisan or bipartisan effort that is, uh, you know, Leon Panetta is involved in it and, and uh, uh, Tom Ridge is involved with it. Uh, 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 just uh, Mike Chertoff, which is a lot, a lot of very, very good senior people are involved in this uh, former senator from Tennessee, who was the uh, Senate uh, leader, Republican leader, is involved. So they're all working on this patience campaign. So that's a byword as well to keep in mind for you guys uh, all the time and during your podcast. Very welcome to have you on the air doing this. And patience, uh, uh, preaching patience is going to be absolutely essential. Ken, this is a very important message, and I would, again, all you listeners out there, it's keepourrepublic.com, keepourrepublic.com. Uh, it, it really is uh, important, and Tim Worth, you're doing great work. Thank you so much for being with us, and you and Ren, you and Ren stay safe. Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you. Bye-bye. Joseph Cerna is a prize-winning staff writer for the Los Angeles Times and has led the coverage of wildfires that are ravaging the West. Some five million acres, I think, have been decimated. Uh, Joseph, you and your paper have done a terrific job, and this is a terrible and a very sad story. Give us some idea of the scope of the tragedy. I think the worst fires in California history uh, the cost, the losses, loss in life. Yeah, well, um, it has been uh, a bad year, a decimating year, uh, especially compared to history. Thank you for having me. Um, the scale, it's really hard to grasp for, for people not in the West and for not in these states. Um, our digital team has done a good job of trying to, to illustrate some of this for us. Uh, what we've experienced this year uh, would equate to, you know, maybe six uh, of downtown LA's burning in one year. Um, that's 5,000 buildings over and over and over again burning. Uh, more than 5 million acres that you mentioned. Um, it's in the billions. The damage is going to be in the billions. Um, just two years ago, um, which was the most expensive uh, destructive year in the world, um, California led the way. And um, while we don't have the number of buildings destroyed again this year, um, yet, 
it's still early in the season. We've lost uh, thousands of homes, uh, displaced tens of thousands of people in just California. When you bring in Oregon and Washington into the West, uh, into that whole picture, um, like you said, it's almost uh, 5 million acres. Um, it's kind of hard to put your, your mind around it, but it's going to be a, a toll that we pay in the immediate sense uh, through FEMA funds, uh, through local funds, but then in the long term, um, insurance industries, uh, people who lost their jobs, lost their businesses uh, are going to recover. So these kinds of things have ripples that go to, go on for years. And on this scale across this, this amount of people in these three states, um, we're going to be paying for it for a long time. Joseph, uh, you have uh, California, Washington, Oregon have had to evacuate thousands of people. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of brave firefighters out there working around the clock. And it's all being done in the middle of a pandemic. How, how much has, has, has the COVID uh, uh, affliction affected, affected this effort? You know, that's a good question. It's really on the logistical side and, and kind of in the background, that's where you would see COVID play out on the fire lines. When it comes to how firefighters are actually going to go out and do their, their job of fighting flames with, you know, hose, water, um, digging containment lines where they, you know, use hose and bulldozers to scrape through the dirt. That stuff has stayed the same because the fundamentals of firefighting do not change. But like I'd said, the logistics sides are different. Um, the way they set up to go fight a fire is different. Um, there are camps uh, where you'd gather hundreds, thousands possibly of firefighters. Um, those don't really exist in the current form the way they used to, where you'd get uh, these long shower or uh, stalls for showers, uh, chow lines, people sleeping in bunks that are you know, 50 or 60 people. Um, it was a really centralized location. So uh, communication was there, uh, food was there, um, equipment was there, medical aid was there. Um, that's not happening anymore. It's really more old school, broken up into small parts. Um, so what that requires sometimes um, is more vehicles. Um, when there's more vehicles on the road, that's an increased risk for firefighters. Um, that also means more costs. Um, and that's on the back end. Um, on the front end, uh, one thing that has changed because of COVID, uh, we wrote about this earlier this year, is uh, the federal government tried to take a more aggressive posture with firefighting this year. Obviously, uh, I don't think anyone anticipated getting this many fires at once, but the plan going in was to be extra aggressive. Uh, the federal side, uh, I think uh, Lisa Murkowski had written about this um, and uh, had called for this from uh, Alaska. Cal Fire, the same thing. They wanted all fires to stay as small as possible by attacking it from the air with helicopters, uh, fixed wing aircraft, uh, dropping retardant. They wanted to keep everything small so they could keep people in their homes and not in evacuation centers, not where they would gather and spread the virus. Um, but in lieu of that, um, the Red Cross has had to do a, a larger job of getting people into hotel rooms uh, so they don't gather. That's kind of a long answer for that, but there's it, it plays a role in a lot. Yeah, I can just imagine. I'm going to turn to, turn over to James in just a sec. But there, look, there are multiple causes of why this is, is, is bad, why it's maybe worse than it should be, overcrowding, maybe poor stewardship. But central to this problem isn't, despite the president's denial, Joseph, uh, is climate change. Well, I, I guess we have to define what the, the problem is because um, – I mean, fire has been around forever. <laughs> fire was here before man was here. Uh, fire was here before um, Europeans settled it. Uh, the indigenous uh, people who lived here, they used fire. Um, it serves a purpose. Yeah, it does. It serves a purpose. So when we talk about, you know, the problem, um, it's really, it's our problem with fire. And um, so climate change does play a role in the, in the fact that it sets the table for fire to be easier to live, easier to grow. Um, it's just everybody would have the common sense that when it's hotter, it's easier for things to burn. Just go out to a campfire, you know, go camping on a, you know, a cool, cool morning where it's moist, harder to get that fire set than it is on a hot blazing day uh, when it's dry outside. So it plays a role in that regard, but that's not the only, the only issue. And I think other people, you know, have spoken to this, but, uh, you know, the wildland urban interface where, where people move closer into the foothills, into the mountains, before you get full on into the forest. Um, those kinds of uh, developments are expanding, um, especially in California. Our utility grid, uh, our infrastructure is getting old. It's very old in a lot of places. Uh, so that's more vulnerable. 
the wind events are getting, um, well, can't say they're getting more extreme yet, but the ones that are extreme are playing a larger role. Um, so it's a really combination of the table is set more often for fire, uh, it seems, because of these because of the heat and the drought um, and in the same time we're getting closer <laughs> we're, we're putting humans more on that table uh, where they're more vulnerable to fire um, and those are just two two of the many elements that go into uh, the predicament uh, ourselves Oregon and Washington find ourselves in so so what the what the Trump people say and the conservative radio and television is look they don't manage these forests right the environmentalists won't let them clean out the underbrush like they should do and if you send them out and it's really all the environmental movement that's that's causing this because of blah 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 yeah is there some truth to that i mean there is but it's all a matter again of, of degrees and nuance and you know when i talk to uh, most environmental groups when i talk to firefighters there is something to be said for forest management um i mean the truth is and the ironic part is a lot of this is is on the federal government it was the u.s forest service after 1910 um, which was the big burn um, if anyone googles the big burn um, 1910 three million acre fire across three states uh, the world was a lot different then so for a fire to go across three million acres um, in one shot um, it was a different layout back then, especially with the timber industry. But when that happened, um, it really reset uh, the standards for the Forest Service. They came up, came away with a posture of all fire is bad. Um, it killed a lot of people. Um, and ever since then, uh, the posture was we have to put out fires where they begin. And what that led to was... Um, this overgrown forest in a lot of parts of Sierra and lots of parts of the West. Um, and it wasn't until the last few decades, a couple of generations where um, people started to notice that, hey, we're not getting new trees in the forest, uh, new ones to replace these these old ones. And they, they started to revisit how to do it. Anyway, long, long answer for that question is it, it plays a role because um, it is out there. There's an overgrown forest most of California's forest is managed by the federal government, by the way. Um, so they do have a significant uh, role in if it's overgrown or not. Um, so it plays a role. It makes fires more extreme. Um, but you can't burn them everywhere. Some of them are just too inaccessible. But again, um, we're also closer uh, to a lot of these overgrown areas. We're developing a lot of these overgrown areas. We're running uh you know electrical utilities through these overgrown areas and, and across these mountains um and we're not always doing the best job of preparing for that in the way we design our our, our towns or, or our homes um so it's really you know there's many sides to that issue um but having an overgrown forest is certainly a part of it but it is not the cause for it because again fires were here before us and they'll be here long after us you know as long as we have vegetation well I, I was reading this morning that worldwide is fires are setting records. I mean, they fires in Siberia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was actually and, in Australia. You know, yeah. yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of bad forestry management around the world, if you want to believe that. There's a lot of bad forestry uh, management around the world. And it's also, again, what's going on with the climate and the heat. Um, when I was in Australia, um, and Siberia is another example of this. I mean, these forests are, are drought stricken. They're, they're more dry than they've been in, in some time, if not ever. And then you just get uh, mother nature doing her thing, which is coming through with lightning strikes. And basically just the landscape is primed to burn. It is waiting for something to, to set it off. And, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, you know, if you had a hundred lightning strikes, these are just numbers I'm, I'm just hypothetically throwing out there. But if you had, you know, a one in 20 chance of a lightning strike igniting a forest fire, it's it's a much greater chance today. Uh, the dice are kind of weighted in the favor of starting fires these days. Um, and so Siberia is another good example of that. It's They've had fires there in the past, but what we're seeing now is things are bigger. Um, things are spreading faster. Um, and that is... Um, from every expert I talk to, a direct uh, correlation to the fact that our, our world is is warmer and drier. Uh, you know, this is the, the macro story is awful. Five million acres, the billions of dollars of cost. But the human story is also, you know, a tragedy. I saw in your paper this morning, Joseph, 
uh, uh, just a touching story about a, a Berry Creek, California, up in the north, little town of less than a thousand people. The Syrian immigrant uh, had started a he, had, he owns a gas station and a convenience store. His young daughter is a reporter for the Chico newspaper. They were the linchpin. They were the centerpiece of that community. All gone. Uh, and I don't know how they recover. And there are probably thousands of stories like that. Oh, they're, they're not probably. There are certainly um, thousands, tens of thousands of stories like that. And Berry Creek and Butte County overall um, is, is a real example of, um, you know, what a really kind of worst case scenario uh, can be like for a, a community kind of on the edge, on the, the leading edge of uh, the impacts of, not just climate change again, but a lot of our decisions in California and the West and the way we've built out uh, our state with where we put our people, how we put them there and how we maintain the land around them. Um, Berry Creek lost, uh, you know, at least, I believe, uh, 15 people. Um, if you combine that with what happened in 2018 in the campfire, uh, which is also in Butte County, uh, you have at least 100 dead in just two years and in, in, two fires in, in that one county alone. Um, that county, though, it's and Berry Creek in particular are indicative or, or symptomatic of a lot of California. You get these rural homes or these rural places with with people, um, you know, of all political uh, stripes, of uh, all colors, creeds, races. Um, it's just a diverse, it's California, so it's very diverse. You can't really it's, it's hard for people to put politics in it um, because when you go down to these places, I mean, politics don't play a role. Fire doesn't, doesn't care. And um, in these places, you're surrounded by forest. You have resilient communities uh, who are self-reliant. Um, and, you know, they're vulnerable to fire. And so what you saw in Berry Creek, and we covered this, was when they were told to evacuate, uh, they were given uh, seven hours to evacuate in some some places. Not everybody got the evacuations, but uh, those who did had to make a choice. And, and many leave, uh, and many did leave because of the campfire two years ago, but some didn't, um, either by choice or because they couldn't. Um, and so people died. And that's what happened two years ago. People died. Um, and it's going to happen again, and um, it's terrible. How long does this fire season last? Well, it started earlier. Um, it's usually, I mean, usually in Southern California. Well, we're talking with Northern California, so if we stick with Northern California, that that fire season actually usually begins in like June or July, um, and is supposed to be calming down about this time. Um, but now our, our fire season is almost, I would almost say, year year round. I mean, we haven't had. Major fires in January, February, March, um, April um, for some time. And I've been covering fires here for the time since uh, 2013. Um, we haven't had major fires then, but uh, 2018, we had big fires in July. Um, and uh, 2017, we had fires in December. Um, so really, <laughs> there's only like a few months where we're not sitting by our desks uh, wondering if there's a fire or where these communities are sitting there vulnerable, uh, wondering if there could be a fire there. Um, it's a lot longer than it used to be. And um, that just has cascading effects for the way that people live their lives and, and what it costs the state to be there. Well, we, Joseph, we really appreciate all of our listeners out there. If you're interested in this uh, vitally important but tragic story, uh, you know, read the LA Times and look at that story about that Syrian immigrant and the little uh, gas station convenience store in Berry Creek, because it just breaks your heart. I hope some people will will, will help that family. Joseph, you, you're doing uh, a terrific job under very trying circumstances. Thank you so much for enlightening us today. Yeah, thank you, man. You really, you know your subject matter. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Oh, wow, James. Uh, you know, I mean, you suffered down in the, uh, in the bayou down in New Orleans with hurricanes. Uh, there's fires out in California. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, a lot of tough stuff. And uh, the hurricane has already hit, but hit Mobile. Uh, you're going to avoid it this time, but... Yeah, kind of Alabama and Northwest Florida. But just, the problem is it's moving at two miles an hour. And it's going to just dump water everywhere. 
you know, a lot of water get dumped in Alabama, Georgia. You know, it's just it's a slow moving storm, and it, it, that's the problem. These storms move slow in their weather. James, before we go, I thought Tim Worth was really interesting today, and Joseph Cerner really, really enlightened me about that forest fires. Uh, and the uh, Joseph, of course, is with the L.A. Times, and it's uh, keep keepourrepublic.com for Tim Worth's group. Let's just spend a couple minutes on politics before we go. You know, you and I both hear from friends who say, oh, my God, this race is tightening. Oh, wow, I'm worried. I saw some survey. You know, looking over everything everything there's no indications that this race is really tightening no and and people like call me and everything so much they actually start scaring me and then i just go back and say what 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 are you afraid of i mean everything we have now and you know that thing he did last night you know i hope more people watch that he doesn't even he, he doesn't relate to voters. Well, who is it? Michael Cohen or someone said he really doesn't like these people. I mean, he doesn't. He has contempt for them. He plays. No, Howard Stern, because he hates his own people. He does. But, you know, on this, I, I went and NPR had a piece about four or five days ago. Minnesota is in play. And Corey Lewandowski uh, said, you know, you watch. We're going to win Minnesota. And there were Republicans that said, you know, yeah, we might lose one or two that he won. But Minnesota is at the top of it. Well, I, I know ABC poll, which is a perfectly credible poll, came out uh, today uh, with a 16-point lead for Biden. Now, I think that's probably exaggerated, but three others have an eight- or nine-point lead. I, I just don't see what's what's changed to Trump's benefit uh, in the last three or four weeks. You know, they are so depressed and uh, are so desperate for a story. And the, the Democrats so climb on to any bad news story. So... If they put a story like that up there, everybody's going on it because the Republicans are going to say, ha-ha, look at it, we're coming back, and the Democrats go, oh, my God, it's 2016 all over again. And you're going to see the same thing's going to happen in Nevada. But anything that they say that'll make it more competitive, where you get one poll. Remember the Monmouth poll in Pennsylvania was up three, and everybody went, I said, of course, you had Monmouth poll that just came out in Florida. Was it Monmouth or Susquehanna? But whatever it was, yeah, you're it was right. Susquehanna. I'm sorry, it wasn't my. I, 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 yeah. I stand corrected. Yeah. Thank you. Because So the Monmouth comes out showing it five points in Florida. And everybody kept saying Florida's slipping away. No. And, you, you know, you're just going to get variation on, on, on some of these polls. But, you know, Monmouth is one of the, one of the better of those. Uh, nationwide polls. So right, you and I both remember we got both. I think had a reaction from people. There was a headline about a week ago for uh, this was the Marquette law we, poll. It's a good poll. It's a good poll, which said uh, Biden lead in Wisconsin is slipping to four points. Well, when you look at the poll, and Milwaukee Journal covered this uh, correctly. It was 49, 44, three or four weeks ago. It was 47, 43. That ain't slipping. That's stability. That's staying the same. Right. And just so our listeners understand, when you see these numbers, they're rounded numbers. So you could be ahead, you know, you could have 45.4 and somebody has 44.6. That's going to get reported at 45. So, I mean, somebody's one, I don't know if this is the case in this poll, but some of it can be a rounding error. And it, it's just hard for polling. That kind of consistency probably tells you where it is now, which is you're up five, you know, and that undecided don't generally break for you. Well, you know, I'd make one more point, which I, I hear from some Democratic friends. This has been a absolutely horrible two weeks for Trump. Between Bob Woodward's revelations uh, you know, your Senator John Kennedy said, that's just a gotcha book. Uh, I'm sorry, Senator Kennedy. That was an interview with a president. That's his own words. Uh, and Jeffrey Goldberg's totally credible story about him calling uh, slain military uh, uh, heroes uh, losers. It's been terrible. And he doesn't seem to have had much effect. Well, that may be true, it may be, but it may be killing. But on the other hand, if he does something supposedly big or good, like that, what I think is largely overhyped and semi-phony uh, Mideast peace conference at the White House the other day, that's not going to help him either. He's just rock 
you know, he's just rock solid at a low point. And, you know, this is as of right now. You know, there's a lot of events that are coming up in this campaign. But, you know, people, I don't mentally, I don't know if some of these people can make it to election day. It's people are just so nervous and just glum on to any piece of bad news they can find. And, you know, it's in when people say the star it doesn't have an effect, and Woodward comes out, you know, it, it's going to have an effect. It's going to add up to 100 on election day. And right now, I would describe myself as, but I, I would love for this election to be tomorrow. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be a blowout. I mean, you could just see it. Well, yeah, I agree with you. And also, it would be 47 more days that uh, that we don't have to worry and go through right. any any kind of anguish. Each 47 days, and uh, I haven't translated that into hours. It's probably over a thousand hours each day. James seems like a uh, like a decade. I mean, it just like a week. It does not go uh, easily. No. But well, we had a, we had another good show today, and uh, we're going to have a special show on Friday. Uh, uh, we're going to have, a, it's actually may air Saturday, but late Friday or early Saturday, James Fallows, who I think may be one of the most important, uh, public and journalistic intellectuals, uh, of our times, uh, has written a piece on how the media is handling this election and perhaps repeating some of the same mistakes made in 2016. And we talk to Jim and Deb Fallows. It is always a fascinating and insightful conversation. So this will be another special this week, and we're looking forward to it. And I, I, I let me just say to everybody out there, I want to thank you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Uh, email us, uh, politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show with a five-star review. And we'll be back next week as we count down 47 days to go in an election that really this is no longer a cliche, the most important of our lifetime. So please vote early. Be well. James, be safe. And we'll be back in 48 hours. Good deal, man.